The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Last week we began um, this topic of delusion. Most of you know, if you weren't even if you weren't here last week, that in the Buddhist tradition this is the central issue. This tendency to be disconnected or misinterpreting, misperceiving our experience. And then it sets in motion all sorts of problems. If I'm not really connected to what's happening in my life, then my experience is going to arise out of not being connected. And so as I integrate that experience coming out of misperception, I'm going to draw conclusions based on misperception. My whole worldview will arise out of misperception. And then because of that worldview, that understanding that I have coming out of misperception, I'll think I should pay attention to this aspect of my experience or this aspect of my experience. But these choices of what to pay attention to and how to pay attention, again, it's coming out of misperception. And so we begin to have a series of habits of how we pay attention, all based on ignorance. you know. And then this further entrenches in delusion. I mean, this is the thing about delusion. It gets quite in entrenched because it skews understanding. It skews our values. It skews what we pay attention to and how we pay attention, which further skews how we understand things and on and on like that. And of course, the actions we take in life, they're off because it's based on not paying attention, not being connected. Last week, uh, I mentioned just the pervasiveness of inattention and all the ways that gets supported. You know, part of it is just laziness. It's just easier to assume we know what's going on than to actually pay attention. Like we might have gone through the day to day assuming I'm in a good mood or I'm in a bad mood. But the question would be, well, how many times did we actually check? You know, what is the mood? What is the attitude? Because probably whatever it was, it was changing. You know, there were moments of being delighted and maybe moments of being depressed. But we get lazy and we just want to sum things up. This person is this way. Life is bad. Life is good. I'm a jerk. I'm a good person. So all, most of our concepts, maybe all of our concepts, our ideas, they're ways we sum up things. We talked about this last week. And we even talked about how probably this was adaptive, meaning it supports survival to be able to quickly summarize our experience and call it something. I'm in danger. I'm safe. I need to run. It's OK to hang out. So these conclusions or these interpretations can be adaptive. So it's not like it's always bad 
or inherently bad. The problem is, is when we take these interpretations to be more than what they are, sort of a momentary interpretation that, hey, it's okay, I can relax, as opposed to some seeing it as some absolute truth. Or if I did something stupid and I'm embarrassed, I can take that feeling of shame and I can make it an absolute truth, like I'm really an idiot. And in that moment, or in those moments, it really feels like some universal absolute truth that I'm an idiot. And everything I think of and see in those moments are colored by that particular worldview. And you know, we're just busy. Part of it is just being busy. So we're lazy, it's just easier to use our interpretation instead of really connecting. Part of it, we're trying to do too much, so we don't really let the mind, the heart connect before we're <coughs> trying to connect with the next moment or the next step or do three things at once. It's like not having a value, the value to um, do one thing at a time. Or so much of our life we write off as being not so important, so we don't actually feel the need to show up completely to the next step or to the reaching for the doorknob or the being with the person, you know, and seeing the person hearing the person. Just think about how much of life seems to be in the way of doing what we want to do or getting to where we want to be. I mean, it's so interesting in hindsight, you know, when we look back, like, oh, there's got to be consequences to always be in this mode of trying to get to the life we want to be living instead of living the life that's happening, connecting with the life that's happening. So this is part of that pattern of inattention. You know, we're just thinking we're on a mission to get to our life, to get to what we want to be doing, and we justify being disconnected, not really landing, not really feeling what we feel, seeing what we see, aware that we're thinking what we're thinking, we're oblivious and disconnected and suffering the consequences of being disconnected. Part of this inattention, this disconnection, is just being afraid. You know, when we're tight, it also triggers that narrowing of the mind. When I'm feeling defensive or frightened, then it's like the only thing that gets my attention is something that has to do with survival or, you know, addressing the thing that's scary. And we ignore everything else. So if we go around life most of the day tight or fearful, anxious, then you can bet you know, that you're living with a narrow perspective, that your mind is naturally excluding much of your experience, filtering it out, and only highlighting things that are related to the fear, the things you think are related to the fear. So that doesn't mean that they're actually related to your fear or anxiety. Your anxiety may be something from four lifetimes ago, you know, or something that happened yesterday. But your mind, our mind, is going to assume it's something in this present moment that's triggering the anxiety 
and it's going to look here, and it's just going to make an assumption: this person's creeping me out, you know, or this thing that I have to do tomorrow is scaring me. So, well, it's like it's hard for us to have a strong emotion without having a reason for it. So we'll make up a reason. And this is part of that fear, the way that fear dilutes the mind. And we get into uh, support that pattern of inattention or disconnection. And I mentioned last week, you know, so this basic, you know, the practice is really this shift of allegiance from, you know, allegiance to our particular view. Like if we're lazy, the view is, I already know what's going on. I don't really need to connect. Or if we're anxious or fearful, the view is, this is the only thing that's important. I don't really have time for anything else right now. I got to focus because I could get screwed. I could get in trouble. Or, you know, if it isn't fear, if it isn't laziness, you know, whatever it is, you want to just see how the mind is uh, in allegiance to its ideas, as opposed to what we call practice, you know, awareness practice, wisdom, mindfulness practice, then we're having allegiance for Dhamma, or Sanskrit, the word is Dharma. Dharma or Dhamma means the way it is. So what's our allegiance? And right now, like, what's our allegiance? Do we have an allegiance to the way that it is? Like things in and of themselves, the body sitting in and of itself, the mind, however the mind is, whatever the mind is. I mean, it may be a mystery, but whatever the mind is, it's this right here, you know, this experience of the mind. So it's not like it's foreign or that we need somebody else, even the Buddha, to tell us what our mind is, because this is the mind right now. Like whatever it is, your mind, it's right here. So this is what we this is what Dhamma points to. The teachings and this word itself, it's referring to the way that it is right now. And the question is, do we have an allegiance, a respect for this Dhamma, the way it is? Or do we have a respect for our interpretation, our idea? And that's really the crux of the practice. And it really all has to do with delusion, the presence of delusion. Let me know if you can't hear me. The batteries just went out, but usually I can be loud enough to get to everybody. And the last thing I just wanted to mention, so when we're uh, looking at that choice of allegiances, the thing that tends to skew us towards our interpretations is we get confused by pleasantness, we get confused by unpleasantness, and we get confused by neutrality of experience. So for example, if I'm having a life and having an experience and I'm experiencing something really pleasant, the, mind, the mind's habit is to be confused by the pleasant experience. and the way that confusion manifests is I want to have an, an, an idea. Like there's something really pleasant I'm experiencing, a pleasant sight, a pleasant taste, a pleasant thought. 
And I want to have an idea about that pleasant thought, like, how can I make it last? I really like this. I want it to be this way always. So we take the pleasantness person personally. Same with unpleasantness, exactly the same. Except we don't like the unpleasant, but we take it personally, and so I personally want to get rid of the unpleasantness. In neutrality, we personally want to ignore it. We personally don't think it's important because it's neutral or ordinary. So we discount it or ignore it. So out of habit, all experience exhibits pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality, and we get confused by that. So part of learning how to, to, to come into allegiance to respect Dhamma the way it is, is as we open to the present moment, as we include things as they are, it's to not be com confused by pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality, which means we actually want to see it. So that could be that would be an amazing homework for the next couple lifetimes, where we would just, as we're living our life, taking care of our kids, earning a living, fixing up our home, cooking dinner, what we'd really be doing is just tracking whether the present moment experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and then not being confused by it. And the way we're not confused by it is recognizing it's just unpleasantness, or it's just pleasantness, or it's just ordinariness, you know, neutrality. It's just that. Instead of out of habit taking the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutrality personally and reacting habitually accordingly. This is from Bhante Gunaratana's book. I mentioned that book last week, Mindfulness in Plain English. This is a new passage I didn't read last week. He says, Vipassana meditation, which is the style of Buddhist practice we do here, coming out of the Theravada Buddhist tradition. So again, he says, Vipassana meditation teaches us how to scrutinize our own perceptual process with great precision. We learn to watch the arising of thought and perception with a feeling of serene detachment. Or maybe better, you could say non-attachment has less of an aversive quality than the word detachment, I think. And then he goes on and says, we learn to view our own reactions to stimuli with calm and clarity. We begin to see ourselves reacting without getting caught up in the reactions themselves. The obsessive nature of thought slowly dies. We can still get married. We can still step out of the path of a truck. We don't need to go through hell over either one. This escape from the obsessive nature of thought produces a whole new view of reality. It is a complete paradigm shift, a total change in the perceptual mechanism. It brings, it, it brings with it the bliss of emancipation from obsessions. So he's talking about the shift in allegiance that I mentioned before. When we're allegiance to thought, you know, then uh, it sort of dominates our life controls our life. Because of these advantages, Buddhism sees, uh, Buddhism views this way of looking at things as a correct view of life. And Buddhist texts call it seeing things as they really are, as opposed to being obsessed, or we could say, because obsessed maybe is stronger than, like it, it points to a really strong state of contraction when we're obsessed. 
but we could say being obsessed, being caught, being fixated, being identified. So that that word identified maybe is a little bit more useful because sometimes the mind's identified, but the contraction isn't obvious. You know, it doesn't seem like we're in a contracted state, yet I'm really identified with this body being me, for example. I mean, we live our, our lives 99.9% of the time identified with the experience of the body. So we're not feeling sensations as sensations. It's my body feeling this way. That's a story projected over the actual experience of sensation, right? It's almost like we don't get to feel, know the body directly because we have this overlay. My sensations, I don't like these sensations, I like those sensations. And that interpretation or that overlay actually means, although we live this life through a body in a body, we're not really aware of the body. We're aware sometimes of our interpretation, our ideas about the body, or our opinion about the body. But the direct experience of the body, not so often. It's why people are interested in things like yoga and tai chi and other mindful physical activities. But even those most often get corrupted. They get turned into exercise, turned into ways of achieving some goal, which is all about ideas, right? As opposed to just learning how to be grounded, relaxed in the in this direct, honest way with the aliveness of the body, physicality. Another point that Jack Kornfield makes in this chapter is, in a deeper way, delusion operates as denial, which means even though something is happening, in a sense, right in front of us, we deny it. It's like the allegiance to our thought about things, our interpretation, is so powerful that something can arise directly in our field of experience. We see it, we hear it, we touch it, but we believe our thought more than we believe our experience. So you can, just saying it in that way, when we talk about denial in that way, we can see how toxic it can become. And just think about how much has happened and is happening in this world because of denial. You know, whatever you want to look at, you know, like inequality or uh, environmental damage. You know, we can be, you know, pouring, like if we did it in a more local way and, and pour toxins around our bedroom, you know, and, well, it would catch our attention. But we're so in denial of this, the limitations of this planet, for example. Because it's, you know, we have a, you know, our sensory apparatus is, seems limited. We trained it to be limited. So we notice our bedrooms, you know, we notice the few people around us. But we tend not to allow ourselves to be sensitive in a deeper, wider way. This is why the environmental movement, in a sense, got started at the same time when human beings could float far above the earth and take a picture and we could get a sense of, oh, this is our home, you know? Because we don't really have a sense of the whole planet. 
the whole human community, the whole community of living beings. We have to learn how to notice that, to have that sort of deeper, broader, vaster, more inclusive perspective. And then all of a sudden, our sensitivity starts to include it. It starts to, we start to notice when we throw our packaging into the trash. We realize it just doesn't disappear, in my case, on Wednesday morning when the sanitation department comes by. It goes somewhere. Everything we've ever thrown away has gone somewhere. Think about how much denial is involved with that. Like you poop in the toilet and you flush. Do you ever think, well, something has to happen to that? Or every time we turn on the faucet, you know, that water had to come from someplace. Each breath we take in, each breath we go out, we're kind of, not kind of, we are absolutely in this giving and receiving, sharing mode. And when we start having that awareness, you see how that awareness shifts how we are in the world, the kind of choices we make. We close ourselves off uh, in all kinds of ways. You know, we use denial in all kinds of ways. And it's, it's just an inefficient way of dealing with pain. Like if some thought, like even, you know, a global thing like the destruction of the environment, if that's painful for us or inconvenient, then we shut it off and we don't think about it. Or you're, you're involved in an intimate relationship, and it's been slowly dying for years, let's say. But it's inconvenient or painful or terrifying even to imagine not having this person in your life or having to start over or having to figure out how to separate your lives together. So you don't, you know. Aging is inconvenient. Thinking about retirement is inconvenient. It's disturbing. You know, when you look at the charts about, well, if you want to live at the level you're living now, this is how much you need to have saved by this age. <laughs> you know, and that assumes, of course, you know, stock market will continue to increase at its, you know, eight or ten percent a year. You know, which doesn't seem to be the way it's been lately. <laughs> So, but we can, you know, we can be in denial of vulnerability and uncertainty in so many different ways. And then the question really is, you know, is denial a useful strategy? I mean, totally we can get why we might take it up, why in an emergency we might just have to operate with denial. You know, I just can't go there. I just can't look there. Just pretend you're not seeing that. You know, and then we do. We actually forget. But are we aware of the consequences? And when we do become aware of the consequences, are we uh, willing to take the path of least resistance? Because denial is not the path of least resistance. Think about the times when you've been shocked. Like you thought something was one way, 
And then often, you know, because of cognitive dissonance, it's like we'll resist the data, you know, even when our friends, the people around us are sort of forcing us to see the com contrary evidence, we resist. There's a funny story that Jack Kornfield tells in this book. It's just a joke. I'm assuming it's not true. But maybe he makes sense that it would be someday would have happened. Um, he says, sometimes we, we can cling to delusions, even in the face of obvious danger. I like the story about a man who's driving down the highway when he hears a safety alert on the radio. Anyone driving north on Interstate 187 should use great caution. There's a car driving on the wrong side of the divided highway. And the man glares through the windshield and mutters, it's not just one car driving in the wrong way. There are hundreds of them. <laughs> I mean, just think about how many times something like this happens. Every, I don't know, every few months at the center, somebody comes up to me or somebody after a program and says, my shoes are gone, you know? And the interesting thing is, I mean, sometimes it's the person took a very similar kind of pair of shoes, but sometimes the shoes that are left are not even close to the shoes that are gone. I mean, they may be the same color, but like last night, my shoes got taken. And it, it, a size different, a different brand, and mine were pretty new, and these are not new at all. Different place on the shelf. You know, and it's just interesting, like, how long is that person, or how long have we worn something thinking it was this when it was that? Miyoshin Kelly, uh, one of the teachers, uh, IMS teachers, and now teaches in Minneapolis with the Tergar group, the Tibetan Buddhist group in town. She tells a story of flying from Australia to go to IMS in Massachusetts, the Incent Meditation Society. And uh, she had some time, I think, in L.A., airport, so she shopped and she bought herself a nice pair of Birkenstock. And for some reason, she thought she was buying a green pair of Birkenstocks. And she just had in her mind that they were green. And she just really liked her new Birkenstocks. And many times, for several days, the thought would arise. And she was just wearing her new shoes. I love these green Birkenstocks. I love them. And, just, and then, like, I don't know, it was a week later, I forget exactly how many days, when she tells the story. She looked and they realized, she realized that they're blue. <laughs> and she just thought they were green. And that somehow, in the shopping and trying on, she just had this idea that she was asking for a pair of green Birkenstocks, but the ones she actually left with were blue. But the thought remained, these are green, these are green. And it never penetrated her mind until days later that they're not green, they're blue. And there are many examples of this in our lives where we're just unaware our thought, our thoughts, our interpretations just do not line up with reality. And just think about the tension, the mental tension involved in massaging the facts and sort of not letting the, the data, the way it is, penetrate and disturb our delusion, our interpretation. And consider, you know, like you think about people. It's pretty easy for us to notice this with other people. I mean, this is the thing about delusion is how unsuspecting we are that it's happening to us right now. 
even though in the midst of looking around us, and our, especially the people we know well, or political groups that are opposed to your beliefs, it's just so easy to see how they're in denial. You know, we might look, for example, if you consider yourself liberal, and you hear people complaining about, you know, various social programs that support people in need, and you know about uh, we can't afford these, and uh, it's not fair, and people take advantage of them. You know, and then you can just look at them, and you can think, oh, they're just in denial that somehow they're immune to being that person, that they could never their life could never change where they might need unemployment compensation or welfare or food stamps or uh, medical insurance or something like that. Sure, it's easy when you have that to think it's inefficient to provide it for other people. It's so easy. But how about the liberals? Are they able to see their denial? Like this denial that, well, maybe there's not enough money to support everybody in the way that I'd like to support everybody. Or maybe I'm not interested in paying the amount of taxes or having less infrastructure that would have to happen in order to provide the needs of all these people. Or whatever kind of denial that there is for people who just want to take care, but don't think about maybe the fiscal uh, consequences of making those choices. Now, I'm not trying to weigh in one side or the other, but just to open our minds to how much denial we live with in terms of our political views, in terms of our intimate relationships, in terms of aging, in terms of our relationship to power and money. It's really hard to be honest. It needs to be a practice. It's Another way you could talk about this whole path that the Buddha laid out is, you know, in terms of allegiances, we're coming into allegiance with the truth. Like, to, to whatever degree, and hopefully a growing, deepening degree, we understand how heavy denial is, how it doesn't work in the long run. As much as it may seem to make sense in the short run to be in denial, in the long run, it's exhausting, and it takes more and more work. Like, uh, you know, like a lie, you tell a little lie, and then you have to tell other lies to keep people from catching you in that little lie. You know, this is like the classic story. And so it becomes this huge problem. Or there's that old Aesop fable about the fox, I think it is and the grapes. And uh, he really wanted the grapes, you know, but they were too hard to get at, couldn't get at. They're too high up in the bush or whatever, or the vine. And then, so, what is the fox? Where he convinces, convinces himself, well, I guess they're probably sour. They're probably no good. You know, it's like being in denial that he actually wants those grapes. You know, for people who, um, you know, haven't been successful in the way they wanted to be successful, haven't found the partner that they want to find, haven't had the meditation experience that they've wanted. We can have all kinds of denial, like, uh, oh, this practice probably doesn't work anyway. The Buddha was probably wrong. You know, we can just have that, use that as a defense. Nobody's happy 
So how, you know, why should I expect for myself to be happy? How often have we had that view? Like happiness just isn't available. With real conviction, you know. And then if we see somebody happy, just superficial. <laughs> we, you know, I see this a lot. It's like we, we immediately think they're deluded. Like they don't realize they're suffering. If they only knew, you know. We, we completely discount it. It's funny because we know it's true. We're so, and it like takes us off the hook. We use denial to get us off the hook of having to be honest and having to be real and having to um, actually let our powerful, wholesome desire to be happy, to let it sort of really come to the forefront. I want to be happy. I don't want to pretend to be happy. I don't want to pretend you can't be happy. I really want to be happy and free in life. Right? Everybody agree? So so then, like, we have to own that whether we know it's possible or enough, we're at least open to the idea that it's possible because we feel it. We feel already this desire to be happy. And we want to be happy thoroughly without having to have a defense of denial. So we want to be happy and undefended. We don't want to have to be defended in order to be happy. We don't want to have to have constructions, defenses, in order to be happy. Let's open it up for discussion. I'll just shape the things you might want to bring up. But you know, just sharing together about the kind of denial that exists in your life. Look at areas of complacency and perhaps like suspect what denial might be behind places in our life where there's a lot of complacency. Or look places in your life where there's a lot of drivenness trying to get something, get somewhere, become something. And what sort of denial is there? Think about places where there's a lot of certainty. And like one of the places I think there's a lot of denial in our lives is we're in denial that we don't know. You know, so places where we think we're sure, look and see the denial. Like, the den we're denying the fact that we might be wrong. We're denying all those times in the past we thought we were sure, but we ended up being wrong. Like, I really, I'm trying to train myself. I'm, I'm very opinionated. I usually have ideas about how to do things, the right way to do things. But I'm trying to at least in how I language things for other people, you know, this is what I think, but I might be wrong. Like just to acknowledge that I don't really know, but 
let's do it this way. This is how I'd like to do it. And then another thing you might, we can take the last 15, 20 minutes to talk about is uh, places where people have challenged our beliefs. That cognitive dissonance, like just that inability to consider, like, well, maybe they're right. Like just opening our mind to, well, maybe not so. In Zen, sometimes they call this don't know mind. Who knows? So I'll leave it here so we have time to hear from each other. What have you learned in the past? Questions that you have about this talk? Experiences of denial that you'd like to bring up for the group? Yeah, Phil. Well, I think that the, the easy answer is to say that I pay very close attention before I take a drink, while I'm taking a drink, after I've taken a drink, to get a sense of what's operating. You know, what's the expectation or the idea? What's the effect? Because obviously, so much of our recreational use of anything, drugs, media, other substances, activities, food, we're in denial of the consequences. I mean, think about how many things we wouldn't do if we were very clear the consequences. I mean, this is what the advertising campaigns, like with cigarette smoking, you know, and forcing them to write these things on the side of the cigarette package or show pictures, you know, on the TV ad campaigns of people's lungs or there's that very provocative um, ad that wasn't too long ago where they showed somebody, I think he had a tracheotomy or whatever they call it, where they, and dying, seemingly dying of lung cancer. And I forget what he says, but uh, just like, is this what you want? Are you interested in, you know, taking a chance at this? So I think we can do that with alcohol too. And not just in terms of like what what's going on in our own mind, what are we setting in motion in our own lives, but culturally, what are we setting in motion? And like we might be able to handle a glass of wine or a beer every once in a while, but certainly it's clear that some people can't have just one beer or whatever. And so what are we saying to everybody else? No, I'm not up here trying to convince people that you should never drink alcohol, but I think not just with alcohol, but everything, we want to let in all the information so that we're making informed choices. Why wouldn't we want to make an informed choice? Only if we think denial is an effective strategy through life. And that's really about goes back to that question of allegiance. Are we in allegiance with the truth? Or would we rather be comfortable just with our ideas. See, that takes so much denial to maintain, to defend our ideas from reality, you know, from the way that it is. Other thoughts come to mind? Yeah. Yeah, say your name. Uh, I had a uh, situation at work today, it's like a minor confrontation. 
that I thought I'd handled pretty well. So I, I found that coming up in my sit tonight. It was, that kept replaying, and it was that kind of, um, you know, I'm trying to stay mindful during the whole thing. Okay, I'm remembering, remembering is being known, and pride, pride is being known, or whatever. But then, like, during your talk, you were saying, well, we all want to be happy, right? We want, and I guess my question is, isn't being happy just another mind state? Like, isn't that clinging to being happy then? Like, even if we're happy, wouldn't that just be, oh, happiness is being known? Like, to not actually embrace that, but to, like, step away from it? I, I guess that, like, I'm confused <coughs> what the, the goal should be with all of this. Do we not want to get to happy because happy is just something that we find pleasant so we want more of you know does that make sense no it makes total sense yeah and that's exactly how the practice unfolds one thing that stay, seems to be stable for healthy people who aren't people who aren't completely overwhelmed by life by mental illness by poverty one thing that seems to be relatively consistent is that they can tune into the desire the wish to be happy, right? And so people, when they're not overwhelmed, they pursue that as intelligently as they can. And they get to the place where every once in a while they feel happy because something's happened that they thought would make them happy and then it happens. And they think, oh, I'm happy because I got what I wanted or I got rid of what I didn't want and I'm happy. But then, you know, they get identified with that happiness and maybe if they're fortunate, if their mind is sensitive enough, they'll notice that that dependency on happiness is not happiness, you know, or the there's still insecurity in this happiness because now that that first rush of getting what I wanted is there, but now it's ordinary because I already have it now, you know. So I, now I need something else. So there's the desire to be happy. We trust that <coughs> it's pretty stable, and then all of our attempts to be happy eventually seem to get frustrated, and so our sense of what happiness is begins to mature from a happiness that arises because we've become something or we've gotten something or we've gotten rid of something to a happiness of independence, like a happiness of not needing things to be other than they are. That's happiness, but it's found in a different place or in a different way, if that makes sense. But see, that's a natural maturing through by pursuing happiness. So we just pursue happiness with our current level of understanding. So however gross or simplistic it might be, it's appropriate for us, it's unavoidable for us just to pursue happiness in that way. If we're mindful though, we'll naturally, if we're sensitive, we'll naturally catch how, like you suggest, how limited that happiness is. And then the happiness of letting go, the happiness of renunciation, the happiness of the unconditioned begins to rise in the mind. The mind begins to intuit it. Like there's a deeper happiness. You can call it the happiness of peace or the happiness of letting go. In Buddhism, it's usually the happiness of <coughs> cessation. It's the mind ceasing needing things to be other than they are. The cessation of greed and aversion and delusion. That's real happiness from a Buddhist point of view. That's a happiness that um, that isn't limited. There's no flaws in it because it's not about the particular conditions. As long as the happiness 
our happiness is dependent on conditions, we're screwed because there's no conditions that are stable. You know, so it's always going to be tension involved with even really nice happiness. Like we have a really wholesome family life. We're healthy. We know how to take care of our body. We live in a wholesome community where we're really generous and taking care of each other. It may be really beautiful, a really beautiful utopia, but it's not stable. Nothing is stable, and it can change. And even in it, when it's not changing, even when it's exhibiting stability, we know that it's in, unstable. Even if it's unconsciously, we know this is not stable because nothing's stable. So there's tension there, even though right now it's beautiful. So. A very sensitive mind knows all of this about conditioned happiness. And it begins to let go of its identification and attachment with this kind of happiness because it, it realizes it can't really deliver what it wants, which is happiness that doesn't come and go. That's what we really want. Initially, we just want relief. You know, we're fine with happiness that comes and goes. Just give me some happiness because, you know, give me to bed or give me some good food or give me some good sex or give me some whatever. But then when we get enough of that, we realize it's limited, it's limitations. And then the thought occurs, you know, a happiness that doesn't come and go, that isn't uh, unstable. Yeah. Does it sort of follow then? Um, I know there's sort of different ways of going at these teachings, but the, you know, if you are impoverished or um, you haven't had a relationship Sometimes it's good to just go out and have sex or go out and, I don't know. Is that what a relationship is? Yeah, no, I'm just. And, and so I, mean, I bring that up purposefully because it's like you're not going to complete what you're actually looking for potentially. Um, and yet, or if, if you were sort of impoverished in, in one way or another, um, it's that relief that brings the next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's so many subtle levels to that. And so I'm sort of wondering, you know, like some of this path is like reserving yourself from temptations, but I, I think there's something to be said for going into them. Yeah, no, I totally agree. What's your name? James. Yeah, yeah, I agree, James. And I think it's, but, but the what we want to do is understand why that's wholesome. You know, why is it wholesome? Because to say, no, I'm not going to have sex, or I'm not going to have relationship, or I'm not going to try to get out of poverty. I'm just going to accept things as they are. That's its own kind of suffering. So we, we want to explore happiness as any way we can, basically, and then learn from it. So if we pull ourselves out of poverty, we'll have the pleasantness that comes with not being in poverty. And maybe, if we're fortunate, we'll also have the understanding that there's still a lot of tension involved in maintaining not being in poverty. You know, It's not a set thing, like forever, I'm never going to be in poverty again, because things could change. So there's still tension there, but it's a lot better than being in poverty, the tension that's involved in being in poverty. Same thing with like having wholesome relationships, intimate relationships or just friendships. You know, They're not the end all. But when we have really wholesome relationships, there's a, a stability and a happiness. And even beyond that kind of happiness, just like even uh, 
developing a lot of sila or ethical conduct and really being a loving, generous, kind, wise person, there's a lot of stability in that. And concentrating our mind in just the bliss of meditation, that's also a conditioned happiness when we get real calm in meditation, a real inner happiness in meditation, meaning it comes and goes. Like we're sitting in meditation and the mind gets really quiet and it's really nice, but then later when we're in traffic, we're not in that blissful state anymore. But having touched that blissful state, as you suggest, it really changes who we are. We feel refreshed. We feel uh, the mind is more open, more capable of intuiting a happiness beyond conditions. So it's important to uh, any way we can skillfully touch happiness, even in gross ways, it's appropriate, you know, because it's healing. And we become, the mind becomes stable because of that healing. And with that added stability, the mind will see things more clearly. And then it can find out like a, a more subtle happiness. And that brings a more a stable, a, a deeper stability. And then we can even appreciate a more subtle happiness, step by step like that, to a happiness that is unconditioned, you know, that is really stable, beyond conditions that come and go. Yeah, Zach. Yeah, yeah, like uh, letting go of one happiness because we find another happiness. They talk about that in terms of meditation practice. The more you develop your meditation practice and can regularly touch states of calm and ease, it changes our relationship to other places where we seek pleasantness. You know, it doesn't mean we don't enjoy a good movie or we don't enjoy a hot bath or we don't enjoy a good massage. It just means that relative to the refined happiness of a quiet mind, these things are just less important. And this, you know, and this is we've all learned this already. I mean, maybe when we were younger, you know, happiness was drinking and rocking out so late at night. But now maybe we appreciate, you know, going to bed early with a good book and getting up and listening listening to Minnesota Public Radio and, and appreciating our very, you know, perfect coffee brew just the way we like it. So maybe that's a more refined happiness than having to use really intense visual, intense auditory, intense chemical effects, you know, to be happy. Yeah. Thanks, James. Yeah. Hi, I'm Naya. I just think to delusion and moderation and shades of gray. And I think uh, I've been trying to ease myself out of grasping and being really tight. But in my job, I find that I have to be tight sometimes with deadlines where you have to intimate to your team that you need to meet a certain deadline. And if if you're too relaxed about it, then you will not get the job done. Yeah. And so I really struggle with that, where how can I be relaxed, but I have this job that I have to do, I'm getting paid for it, and I want to be good at it. And so I find that I choose the situations where I can be more grasping or not. And it's just Yeah. 
And so just in terms of the discussion of delusion, the, the question might be, did you say Maya? Naya. Naya. The question that Naya might be asking is, if we use aversion or use fear or use attachment in order to get the job done, in order to make things happen in life, are we in denial of the consequences? Or could it be that we're really clear about the consequences of the different emotions we're using to make things happen in our lives? And it still would make sense. Like, does it actually make sense to use attachment, to use anxiety, to use fear? I'm not sure what emotion you would say that you use to grasping. Is that what you said? Yes. Yeah. So that another way of saying being attached to the outcome. Like, because I really want this outcome, you know, I'm willing to sort of use that attachment or that certainty. So we're in denial maybe of, or maybe not, but are we in denial of the consequences of that? And one of the things to ask ourselves is, if we justify it in one situation, like, does it become our world view? So once we justify attachment or grasping, then does it become sort of a way of being, a whole way of being, where, because grasping makes all kinds of assumptions like the assumption that there's somebody who's going to be harmed if I don't get ahead. Or there's somebody who's harmed if people think I'm lazy. So that's what I would reflect on. And then the other thing is, is there another way to be powerful in life without attachment? Like, is there another way to make things happen that doesn't require an inner contraction? Can the voice be strong? Can our actions be assertive without the heart being tight? Tight because of fear, attachment, denial. And so I would kind of just approach it creatively, like knowing that you've got this responsibility and knowing how these people are conditioned, what they're conditioned to respond to and what they're conditioned to ignore. You know, so you know that, and so then you can just be creative, like, how can I get done what needs to be done? How can I fulfill my responsibilities, my job, my responsibilities of taking care of my family and wanting to be successful at my job? How can I fulfill these wholesome, appropriate responsibilities without contributing in my mind and contributing in the world this habit of grasping, of fear, of attachment? Is there a way? And, you know, you might just try being really focused on your love, your appropriate love for your life and for your well-being, for your family's well-being, for the company or the organization's well-being, you know, the whole world's well-being. And if you can, maybe, maybe you're able to place your actions and your choices in the context of taking care of everybody. And so let that assertiveness come out of that, like, hey, we gotta, we got to take care of business here. Otherwise, things fall apart. So let's get this done. I mean, it's the, it's the relevant question about leadership, whether you're a coach or a teacher or you know, a manager or whatever. Like, do we have to rely on greed, anger, and delusion to get things done? We have to leave it here. Maybe it's real quick, Steve. Uh, you just mentioned it originally, uh, 
about stories and denial. And you were talking about how once it gets compounded, it can get really deep. And that, that's been my experience in my life. And I, I was, um, what I found is that I went through cycles. Like when I was really in denial, I'd be like, after three or five years, I would kind of implode. I mean, I'd be so burnt out. Uh, things would just kind of explode, whatever it was, a relationship or work I was doing. And I was uh, having lunch today with a friend of mine who's in AA. I was telling him, you know, it's not unlike a drinker because at one point you do hit rock bottom when you join AA, hopefully. Uh, it's almost similar to that. Like, you go through that cycle enough. Yeah, yeah. And then if we get to be wise, then we just don't need to crash as... Our crashes are every moment, you know, or every few moments where we have built up a little castle in the mind and then we let it die. But when we're sort of less skillful, it just has, we defend it a little longer. So when it does crash, when it does implode, it hurts a little bit more. Yeah, let's leave it here. Thanks, Steve. Take a few breaths together, like all the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.